This is one of Luke's eating stories. I often imagine if I met Luke, he'd be about 25 stone, because uh, if his writing resembles uh, the stories he tells, he's forever eating, he's forever to feast. <laughs> he's, uh, food is never far away from Luke's narratives in the Gospel and the Acts. So let's look at some context for this particular reading, uh, because like all parables, they don't drop out of nowhere. Uh, and if you study the Bible uh, seriously, then one of the things that you must do is not only look at whatever passage you're looking at, but you need to look at what comes before it and what comes after it. It's true that sometimes it's just sort of sat there and it's difficult to work out what relevance the, the, the story before it or after it has because possibly it's just inserted as a block of material that stands in its own right. But sometimes you can see the hand of the editors, the evangelists of the early church, gathering together the stories of Jesus and saying, yes, you see, he talked about this and this is another example of it. And we're going to have to do that a bit this morning. Uh, because if you turn to chapter 14, of which this is a, la a later bit of Luke chapter 14, you'll see that there, there is a whole collection of eating, feasting stories. The, uh, the teaching in this chapter largely takes place in the house of a Pharisee. So note, in spite of being very critical of Pharisees in the Gospels, or was it their Pharisaic attitudes? Discuss. Here is Jesus at dinner among some Pharisees. And Jesus watches, first of all, if you look at the earlier verses of the gospel that we not quite come to yet, he watches as people take their place at this banquet. There's no table plan. There's no name tags on places. It's not like modern marriages where you go and find out which table you're on and then find there that you've got a little lavender and some love hearts and all that sort of stuff. There's just a table. And he watches how some people try and get near where the host or the guest is and other people situate themselves so that they can see the conversation. And he then tells a parable which is about pride and humility. Don't take the higher places, he said. You might have to move down below the salt. Rather, take the lower places, quite far away from the host and the guest of honor, and then you might have the marvelous privilege of him going, come up, come nearer. Reminding the Pharisees, you see, who appear to have thought quite highly of themselves in God's purposes, what St. Paul reminds the Romans, have a sober judgment about yourself. And it's while Jesus sits at a table at the banquet, when they've all eventually presumably situated themselves where they should be, at which he may have been the guest of honor. It's quite possible that the Pharisees, yes, going to be stung many times by his teaching, but they are intellectually intriguing people. And it's quite possible that they've asked a young rabbi from the north who's saying some rather extraordinary and in some cases they think contentious things about the faith and about Yahweh, the God. It's quite possible they've invited him along to be almost the after-dinner speaker and then engage with him. 
It's here, as he sat around this table, that Jesus tells other parables about meals and the people who were invited to them. Uh, Many, many years ago, many years ago, it must be 20, Helen and I went just a few times to a very posh Indian restaurant in Sheffield called Nermal's. It's free advertising if anybody's listening to this online. And as we ate each course, she... Nermal, the owner, used to sort of come along around the restaurant, and it wasn't just this kind of polite thing, you know, impreso or wherever, uh, is everything all right, and they've gone before you can say, no, everything's stone cold or whatever. It's, what do you think of it? Can you taste the cardamom? Have we put enough in? Do you think it'd be better if we did? So we discussed the meal that we were still digesting. And there's similar things going on here. They're sat round at a table, invited and eating, and Jesus is telling them a parable about a group sat round a table, invited and eating. Well, what do we note about this parable? The first thing I want you to note is that in the very first verse, which sort of catches the end of the previous story, When one of those at the table heard him say this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And that's a clear allusion to the idea of the feast at the end of time. The great feast at the end of everything. So I want you to note that the biblical gospel image of the end of heaven is actually of a banquet. Not a Big Bang, not a mushroom cloud, not Armageddon, not eternal punishment, a banquet. And a banquet, as Keener reminded us, usually marks a celebration, a meeting of a family on a special occasion. How wonderful that the image of the capturing together of it all under God's sovereignty, if you try and picture what it will be like, is a banquet. And the fact it's a banquet gives you an indicator, a signal, clues, as to what the nature of God is who invites people to a banquet. God as celebrator. Christianity, you see, is often thought of as a death religion. Now, I need to explain what that means, but when people are talking about it in philosophical terms, uh, then it's thought of as a death religion uh, for two reasons, which I won't go into this morning, but one of them very clearly that it is that the life and the death of Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial to its beliefs and its practices. God's Son dying on a cross, a a saving, redemptive death that makes a way whereby people, all people, can find a way of forgiveness and restoration to God. Death is at the heart of the Christian faith. Or again, Christianity has often been thought of as an after-death religion. 
that it's more concerned actually with whether you get to heaven, to the banquet when you die, rather than actually what you do and how you live when you're here. And there are people in Christian history, some of my heroes, who seemed to have an awful lot more to say about the hope of heaven than actually what was going on in front of them. Take, for instance, a huge, great figure like St. Augustine. We probably do him a disservice, actually, in talking to the fact that he was so-called otherworldly, because his greatest book, which I plowed through when I was in a particularly kind of... Uh, masochistic mood called the De Civitate Dei, 1300 pages of the city of God, is actually about how this world needs to be transformed into the likeness of heaven. But nevertheless, it still stands that the Christian tradition is sometimes associated with a doctrine that goes, never mind what happens in this life. This life's not really important. What's really important is, are you ready for the next one? When you die, are you going to go to heaven? Now, they're important questions. But sometimes people have been critical of Christianity because it's appeared to be too much interested in what happens after death and not particularly interested in what happens before death. It was Karl Marx, wasn't it? Religion is the opiate of the people, that which puts you to sleep so that you sleep through things that you shouldn't do if they're inhumane or if they're ghastly or if they're intolerable. So I want you to note that in this passage and so many other passages of Jesus that we cannot regard Christianity as simply a death religion. Nor does the life and ministry of Jesus allow us to regard Christianity as simply an after-death religion. Christianity, the faith focused and grounded in Jesus Christ, is a life religion. I am come, says Jesus at the end of John's Gospel, that you might have life and have it in all its fullness Eternal life, yes, but life here and now. And Paul talks about Christians possessing the spirit of life, not the spirit of death. Read Romans chapter 8. So God is celebrator of the banquet at the end of time. And then God as inviter. God as host, inviting people to the banquet, and then when people are not aware that the invitation might include them, suggests in the parable that you go out and seek to invite them, to remind them, yes, it's you as well. So notice, because as I've said, the order in which stories and parables appear in the gospel is often deliberate that straight after the eating stories of chapter 14, you move to Luke chapter 15, which is a chapter full of three enormously well-known stories about what? About lost things. A lost coin, a lost sheep, lost sons. 
And it's there particularly so that as you've got the words ringing in your ears, so go out and tell everybody. Go and seek them to the highways and the byways. Now I want to tell you about a woman who lost a coin. And what's the repeated refrain at the end of each of those three stories, whether it's the coin, the sheep, or the person? Rejoice with me. Because that which was lost has been found, and there is great rejoicing in heaven. So God as inviter, and God as sustainer. From manna in the wilderness to a never-failing cruise of oil for a widow with nothing, for bread and fish for 5,000 people on a hillside to a Passover meal that sustains in hard times. From fish on a charcoal fire by the side of Lake Galilee for disciples to bread and wine on an altar for countless Christians for 2,000 years. And those of us today who feel wrung out and dried up and beaten down, at the end there's a banquet. And the banquet starts now. But for all the wonder of the invitation, what you get in the parable are the excuses. Let's look at the excuses. And and what's surprising is that you can interpret these excuses in two different ways. And I leave you to choose. I'm just playing with the text. Well, not playing with it exactly, but trying to share with you what people say when they try and interpret this text. Uh, For instance, the first one, I bought a field. Now, on the one hand, that can be a really, really substantial excuse. I bought a field, I need to go look at it or look after it. Absolutely you do. Because if you don't look after that field and you don't make sure it's fertilized and cared for and you absent yourself, you're going to be like my dear wife's tomato plants when left, when left in the care of our youngest son. Wilted. So, of course, of course we realize as a, an arable community, of course you've got to make sure that work's done on your, on your field. God bless you. You know, have a good time. Sorry you're missing the banquet. Or as some people suggest, is it, I've got a field. I've bought a new house. I've got several. I just need an excuse not to come, really, because I'm one of the people who didn't put their hand up when Keena said, do you like a party? I'm not really. I bought some oxen. Expensive investment. Yeah, let's go look at them. Actually, I bought a new car. And, you know, I'm just aching. It's weekend. I've only got this weekend. I don't want to spend all day in church. I want to get out with my new car. It's a lovely day. I can't come. How do you interpret these excuses? Are they significant? Or are they relatively insignificant in the great scheme of things? I've got married. Now, some of you will know that uh, if you were getting married, it, it exempted you from army duty in the, in the army of Israel. Time with your wife. 
Lurking behind that was the idea that this would be a time when uh, wives could conceive and keep the family line going before a male in the armed service might die. So there was a kind of personal thing about it and also a kind of community national thing about it. Significant. I, I err towards the significance of these rather than making them sound like trite or selfish excuses. Why do I? Because, because Jesus is making it clear to us that even our big and real and valid excuses don't cut it when God's invitation comes. God's invitation, says Jesus, cuts through all your excuses. It puts them all in context. But how often do we say, just as we're ready to castigate the people in the parable, how often do we say, oh, I'll say yes and I'll join the banquet when I've made, when I've made my money, Lord. I just need, don't, for goodness sake, don't call me into something else. I need another five years, two months, and I've made what I, and then I'll start thinking. I'll say yes and join the banquet, Lord, when I've sorted my personal life out. You wouldn't dream of what's going on in my life. Yeah, right. And when I've got it sorted out, then, then I'll have a think about coming to the banquet. I'll say yes, I'll come to the banquet, Lord, when I've done my traveling and I've sold my wild oats and I've finished paying my mortgage and when I'm retired and I've got some time on my hands, that's when I'll come to the banquet. And this parable is meant to judge us, as all parables do. How do we respond today to the notion that the invitation to the greatest banquet of all always elicits in people, right down to today, right down to now, right down to us, excuses why we can't come? What's your excuse? And is it really a particularly good one? And finally, we look at those who were there, the attenders. The shock you see in the parable is the idea of having replacements. As those first invited give their excuses and the number of people who come to the banquet gets smaller and smaller, the host does not do what many hosts would do and say, well, I think what we'll do is it's clearly a bad time of year. It's the London Marathon Week. What we'll do is we'll postpone it to next week. Put the fatted calf back in the deep freezer or whatever. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't postpone it or cancel it. He says, okay, it's this afternoon. Go and invite some other people. And in this case, the other people are the maimed, the poor, the people on the road. Insiders become out and outsiders become in. Now, remember the original setting. Here is Jesus among Pharisees, devout Jews who hold in common that they are, and they realize it's an enormous privilege, we too easily demonize very, very godly, devout people. But they regard as a huge privilege that they are first among equals. They are God's chosen people. If there's any banquet going anywhere at any time, they believe they'll be there. 
So they will not miss the sting in this parable and the one in the earlier part of the chapter, which effectively has Jesus saying to them, yes, you're invited, but don't get too high opinion of yourself. Yes, you're invited, but if you give excuses and put things before God, then you just simply won't go. The the banquet will continue and other people will take your place. You'll forfeit it. So many people have interpreted this parable down the ages as identifying the initial guests as Israel, ancient Israel, who in rejecting Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, give their excuses, don't join the party, and miss the banquet. And then God, in the Christian context of the New Testament, then says, okay, I'll invite the Gentiles then, who to devout Jews we know are unclean nobodies. But the parable has a sting for us too. It's too easy, even if it's an accurate rendition of what early church writers were actually talking about. We Christians today can be just as pious and proud as the Pharisees of old. Well, of course, we'll be invited. I've been a Methodist member for 25 years. If anybody's going to be at the top of that table, it's bound to be me. Have you any idea... How many thousands of boring sermons I've sat through, God owes me at least a seven-course banquet. I remember going off script just for one moment, going with a different role to a church, church meeting. And we were discussing in this local church, and it's one in a district that... Uh, Peter knows well, but I'll not identify where it was. And they got the church council together, and we were talking about a mission audit and whether this church could move to put things on its agenda that really made it more missional and reaching out to people in that particular part of a city, which, for example, we'll call Sheffield. And one man sat there, grumpy, all the way throughout the evening. I mean, there was only about 14 people there, so he stuck out like a sore thumb, and he kept going, hmm. And I, after a bit, I thought, well, I better tackle this, because I was leading the meeting. I said, you, 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 seem, you seem not to be in agreement with this, because there were two or three people really enthusiastic. And he said, and I'll always remember this, he said, no, I don't. I'll, I'll put my Yorkshire voice on even more pronounced here. He said, no, I do not. I said, well... Why exactly? And this was his answer. He said, because there's enough of us here already. It's just right. It's just the right size. And I like it like this. We don't want anybody else coming here. But God says to the followers of Christ who just like it like it is, go and invite all the people to my banquet because there's room for everyone. Everyone who thinks they have no right to be there, go tell them they're wrong. Surely, Lord, you you don't mean them, do you? They're the wrong type, the wrong color, the wrong age bracket, the wrong gender, the wrong sexuality, the wrong socioeconomic grouping. They're not bright enough, they're not good enough, they're not deserving enough, they're too unlike the rest of us. You don't mean them, do you? They're exactly the people I mean, says the host. 
Go invite them to come, and when they say yes, rejoice. So in closing, I remember a story told by Fred Craddock, an American professor who had quite an influence on me a long time ago as a professor of preaching, of all things, who told a group of us of two Americans who were at themselves were themselves at a conference, and they went very early to an American diner, this was in America, for breakfast. And while they were eating, a woman came in, shabbily dressed, poor and presumably off the street, and the owner came from around the sort of bar area where he was busy cooking and everything, and got hold of her and started pushing her towards the door. She protested, and they started to argue, and the people, a small number of people in the restaurant, the two Americans who were attending the conference said an embarrassed silence fell over the breakfast uh, place. One of them turned around and said, I'll offer to pay for the woman. No way, said the owner, pushing her towards the door. This is not the kind of person I want in my place. And he threw her out. And the two men looked at one another, breakfast part eaten, put some money on the table and got up and themselves walked out because it was no place for them either. And one said to the other as they left, can you smell something? Yeah, said the other one, I can smell grease and coffee and breakfast. No, said the other one, you can smell bread and wine. So how do you respond to the invitation of God to join a banquet? Have you sorted yourself out in respect of the excuses? Are you an insider going out or an outsider coming in? Because this parable says, whoever, you're invited. When are you going to take your place at the table? Amen.